0: Hi, it's Nathaniel Miner, host of Ghost Train. If this is the first episode of the show you're listening to, I recommend going back and listening to what comes before. This one will make a lot more sense if you do that. Anyway, here's the show. So far in this series, I've told you about how RTD built a huge rail system designed to mostly serve the suburbs and downtown Denver home of the powerful leaders who made fast tracks happen. But that rail system, it mostly neglected the rest of Denver. So now I'm gonna tell you why RTD didn't build rail lines through the city, where there are more people to use them. And after all this history, what this saga says about a possible future for transit in the city. Before we really get into that, though, we need to look at how Denver solved its transportation issues in the past, and how each of those solutions can create new problems. If you go to the 76,000-seat stadium where the Denver Broncos play football, you'll find that it's nearly surrounded by car infrastructure. Giant parking lots on one side, and the 10-lane Interstate 25 on the other. But you can take transit to the game, and not just on RTDs, buses, and trains. Okay, while we're on our way, I'd like to welcome you all back. This is our first paid trip
1: in 22 months. So it's nice to see you all back.
0: Thank you for your support. Um, Last fall, I hopped on board an antique trolley car on the edge of downtown Denver. We have mainly Bronco fans on this run? Yes? No, we do have a couple of Eagle fans. No
2: problem. No problem. Well, it's no problem for us. Though, if we lose, you guys have to walk back. I'm sorry. No, no, just kidding. We welcome anybody here and everybody. So,
0: thank you. This tiny little trolley line is more than just a novelty. It's the last shred of what was once a vital piece of city infrastructure. Tracks like this stretched out into every corner of Denver about a hundred years ago. The streetcars are long gone, but you can still see their ghosts if you know where to look.
3: People often think that Denver is a car city, but actually it's older than the car.
0: Ryan Keeney studied the city's streetcar system in graduate school at the University of Denver. We took a walk last fall through an old neighborhood south of downtown.
3: Cars didn't really... Start picking up steam until like the 1910s, 1920s. But Denver was, I believe it was incorporated in the 1860s. And no one, there was no cars back then. And so, how did people get around? I mean, eventually the city started to grow beyond the point where walking was practical for everything. So, people had to get around faster. And the way they did that in the early 1870s, they built streetcars. Most of central Denver actually grew in a transit oriented fashion.
0: The streetcars gave people access to more opportunities than they could ever get to on their feet alone. They also shaped the city. Every block had wide sidewalks because people needed to be able to walk to the streetcar stop. And around these stops were little downtowns with grocery stores, restaurants, and other businesses. And they're still there today. There are people out on patios. It's a lovely afternoon in late fall. It's just sort of a nice place to be. Yeah. And so what inspired my graduate research
3: on this, actually, I had moved to Denver six years ago to attend University of Denver, and I was riding my bike through the Platte Park neighborhood. It's a residential neighborhood, a lot of residential character. But then out of nowhere, you start to get all these nice, you know, old commercial buildings. And it's like, wow, this is like a nice little small town Main Street. That's really nice. I wish I grew up in a place like this.
0: There was a lot that streetcars couldn't do, like move people out of the city to the mountains. So when cars came along, Denverites bought them. Now, they could quickly get across town, faster than a streetcar ever could take them. Or they could drive out to the country and find solitude. By the 1950s, it was cars, and not streetcars, that were shaping growth.
4: Like many growing crowded cities, Denver is reaching out to form suburbs for pleasant, wholesome living.
0: In the suburbs, big new highways allowed people to drive even farther and even faster. Parking lots were everywhere. Sidewalks and transit, they were afterthoughts. Cars gave people the ultimate access to opportunities. The freedom to decide where they would live, work, and play.
4: Only a few minutes away from Broomfield Heights, are the great recreational areas of Colorado, where forests of spruce and pine provide an ideal hideaway for a family picnic.
0: People bought more cars, and they needed space for them, so even Denver itself hollowed out its core. Historic downtown buildings were leveled and became parking lots. Streets were widened to fit more traffic. Cars became so dominant, That meant there was little space for anything else, including transit. So decades later, when RTD finally brought rail back to the Denver Metro, it avoided city streets, the walkable neighborhoods that transit once built. And when I set out to understand why, I was surprised to learn something. RTD tried to build rail through the city, and people didn't want it. From a member supported Colorado Public Radio, this is Ghost Train. The story of how one polluted traffic choke city went all in on trains, and what happened when that plan jumped the track. I'm Nathaniel Miner. In this episode, Transit, Cars, and Freedom: how transportation can give people new opportunities to live well and pursue happiness. For the better part of a century, cars have delivered that for most Americans, and they've shaped our cities and our lives. But new truths are emerging. The Freedom Cars Grant comes at a price, especially for the environment, and especially for people who can't get behind the wheel. And so now, some say it's time for cities like Denver to claw back space from cars and to give it to people The key to that vision is more and better transit. Just as more Denverites were buying cars, and the city was ripping out and paving over its streetcar tracks, it got a new resident,
4: Bishop Asen Phillips. I'm the senior pastor in the state of Colorado. I've been here longer than any other pastor, black or white, and uh, just simply means I'm old. Bishop Phillips has wisps of white hair growing at his
0: temples. And when I met him late last year, he was wearing a black vest with a gold cross on a necklace. He grew up in Mississippi and moved to Denver in the 1950s. What was the city like? It was thriving. It was exciting. Phillips settled in the heart of Black Denver, in Five Points, the oldest Black neighborhood in the city, once known as the Harlem of the West, And just to the east, Park Hill, an old streetcar neighborhood where black families made homes after white
4: people fled for the suburbs. I actually just graduated from junior college in Kansas, Kansas, and came here on a vacation just a weekend. Fell in love with the city, first time I'd seen an area where black folk had green grass. When in Kansas City, we had to sweep out front yard off and watered down every day because of the dust.
0: Bishop Phillips grew up in the Jim Crow South. And while some Denver neighborhoods and suburbs were limited to whites only, Phillips says Denver's relatively integrated status impressed him.
4: 5 o'clock in the evening, you would see downtown close and white folk move to the Five Point area. They would honor all the nightclubs, the bars, the restaurants, it was a thriving community and it kept the community from being ghettoized. There was a tremendous idolization of Five Points. It represented more than it was. It represented freedom, equality, economic prudence for black folk, not just in Colorado. People came from all around the nation just to visit Five Points. Anybody coming to Denver wanted to see Five Points.
0: Bishop Phillips had no money, but he did have a car. A 1953 Plymouth that he slept in. And after he got on his feet and met his wife, he began pastoring churches in the two neighborhoods. He became a community institution. Through all that, cars have always been important to him. When I met him last year, he had four aging luxury sedans in his driveway, including a Rolls Royce. Do you just have the four? <laughs> the four cars? I had six. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> This man loves cars, because he remembers what life was like before he got one.
4: I rode on them raggedies, street streetcars in Kansas City. Uh, they had them all over everywhere. But they made more noise, created more dust, more traffic, more disruption.
0: Unlike someone like Ryan Keeney, Bishop Phillips does not romanticize streetcars at all. And it's not just that they were uncomfortable. In his experience, transit was segregated. And racist. You see,
4: whether it was a bus or a streetcar, you if you're black, you gotta get back. You still couldn't sit down. Mm-hmm.
0: And so a car was freedom. You, you you could go where you want when you want. It's your
4: car. I don't care how rag it is, how I many dents in it you watched it, because it belonged to you.
0: On a streetcar or a bus, Bishop Phillips was forced to sit in the back and could only go where it took him. With a car in his life, he was in the driver's seat. By the 1980s, Bishop Phillips had moved his main church out of Park Hill, but he still had strong connections to his old neighborhoods. He would preach on the bed of a truck in Five Points once a month. And it was during this time that Denver got another new resident, Deborah Baskett. She was a young transportation planner for RTD. Now she has silvery hair and a sharp smile. In the 80s, her job was to help pave the way for RTD's first ever light rail line. This predated the big Fast Tracks plan we've talked about for the last two episodes by about a decade. And it focused solely on Denver. They wanted to put it through Five Points and Park Hill, and that excited Deborah.
1: I think we were at a place in time where RTD and planners realize things were changing and that community-driven projects were more important than just moving
0: cars. Because while Bishop Phillips loved cars, by the 1980s the United States had developed a very racist track record when it came to building roads for those cars. New highways split apart minority neighborhoods across the country, displacing thousands of residents and causing urban blight. One infamous example from New York was less obvious.
1: Bridges, underpasses were built so buses could not fit under them, so that marginalized people were not going to be able to use that highway to get to jobs and access to services.
0: Deborah thought this light rail project would be different. She thought it would help residents access more opportunities like jobs and services and she thought the train might act like the streetcars of Denver's past, by attracting more economic growth in these walkable neighborhoods, places where you didn't need an expensive car. The train would be available to anyone who could afford the fare. It would link Five Points with Park Hill, and connect both neighborhoods with jobs downtown. The tracks would run down Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, a leafy street with wide sidewalks on both sides. And if that all sounds great, Bishop Phillips saw it much differently. When you first heard that they wanted to do Martin Luther King, what did you think of that?
4: I understood that they were aiming at destroying the image of the black community. It wasn't just a careless thought. They had been systematically planning for the last 30, 40 years, how do we get black folk out of this economic pocket? Bishop
0: Phillips organized the neighborhoods against the train. Residents worried it would reduce property values, cost parking spaces, and otherwise hurt the pleasant feel of this neighborhood that Black families had worked for years to create and maintain.
1: They really spoke with one clear voice on that. People turned out in the greatest numbers that I'd seen during the planning. And they said, don't create another side of the tracks condition for us.
0: By the early 90s, Deborah and RTD did what so many highway builders of decades before didn't do. They backed down. They ended this line in five points. RTD recognized that Park Hill did not want a train. What did you make of that? That's a the oldest black neighborhood or one of next to five points in the city. And you're a white woman who is, you know, moved here in her 20s. Like, how how are you thinking about this?
1: You know, I, I think we were all pretty naive at that time. Now, if I were to introduce myself in certain forums, I would certainly acknowledge my color and my gender. We were just out there being transportation planners. And Even though it was a different community makeup than I was used to in my little suburban world, honestly, this might sound flippant, but they just seemed like people that cared about their communities to me. I think RTD made the right decision to back off from that.
0: Park Hill residents had grown used to their neighborhood being a certain way. A train probably would have been useful there but they didn't see it as an opportunity. They saw it as a disruption and a threat. Because there's only so much space on city streets. And in Denver, those streets were for cars. As RTD started to develop fast tracks, Denver's cultural commitment to the freedom of cars shaped the plan's ambitions. Did RTD have any appetite for projects that would force people to get out of their car?
1: I don't think so. I think it was very much provide a better option that was faster, more reliable, comfortable, and people would ride it.
0: And that's what RTD tried to do with fast tracks. In the early 2000s, more and more people were realizing that expanding highways was creating more problems. Because here's the thing, the roads we drive on are expensive. As much as Coloradans have spent on fast tracks, we've spent a lot more on roads. And researchers say bigger roads can encourage more people to drive on them, which just makes traffic and air pollution worse. To try to solve the highway problem, RTD put its fast tracks lines in the suburbs, where there was more space, where they'd be less disruptive, and where they'd give commuters an alternative to clogged highways. But in doing so, they neglected the city streets that were literally built around transit. Around streetcars, more than 100 years ago. Mark Imhoff is another former RTD planner. He's retired now, with a few days of stubble on his chin when I met him last year. And he says it's those city streets where transit can be the most effective.
2: To me, part of the trick is to have a system such that a family only needs one car. Or maybe some don't need any. When well, my son lived in Chicago, he didn't have a car. And if he needed a car, he rented one for the weekend. Fast Tracks,
0: this multi-billion dollar transit investment, it was built for people with cars. Driving is the only practical or safe way to get to some rail stations, And some of the new transit-oriented departments and offices near those stations, they're being built with giant parking garages. Far from giving passengers freedom from a vehicle, Mark says this rail system and the developments around it still encourage people to drive.
2: Yeah, you might take the train to work, but it's a lot easier to do everything else by car. Mm -hmm. And people use it for other things, but I don't know if you ever look at night or midday. There's hardly anybody on the trains. So now,
0: Denver is left with a conundrum. Hard to reach pockets in the suburbs have really good transit service. While in some of Denver's walkable city neighborhoods built around transit, buses only come once or twice an hour.
2: It's very interesting, it's really frustrating too. As I can tell you, as a retired guy now, 30 years ago, I had hoped for a better system to retire into. Mark
0: says Fast Tracks is pretty good at what it was designed to do, to get suburbanites downtown. But he says now is the time to start building a better transit system in the city. It's tough, but other cities have built rail, like Seattle, Minneapolis, and even car-crazy Houston. Because from a climate perspective, cars are not the future. Transportation accounts for nearly a third of all carbon emissions in the state. That's more than any other sector, even power generation and oil and gas drilling. Scientists say even a big shift to electric cars won't do enough to reduce emissions. They say people, and especially car-crazy Americans, they just need to drive less.
2: We've been on this kind of steady track Where people worry about it and they might get solar panels and might vote liberally about stuff. But people, I don't feel, as a community, are willing to give up traffic lanes and pay more for more transit. And so, yeah, we had opportunity 30 years ago. We had more opportunity 50 years ago. And we still have some today.
0: Coming up after the break... There is opportunity on the horizon, but it's not trains.
5: Hi, how
0: are you? Okay, uh, introduce yourself for me.
5: Okay, my name is Shanta Lewis. I serve on the board for the Regional Transportation District, um, District B. And we're on the 15.
0: And what is the 15 to you?
5: The, fi- the 15 is my daily commute. Um, it's my favorite bus. It's actually, um, when I was looking to purchase a house, I made sure to purchase my house on a line that had a lot of frequency, and the 15 is one of them. So I love it. It's a great ride. Like that guy has a guitar. <laughs> He's playing the guitar.
0: Chantel Lewis has been riding RTD's buses for a long time. She's a 30-something now, with stylish glasses and a big smile. And she's the only Black member on RTD's 15-person elected board. I wanted to know what she thought about Transit's racist legacy, as Bishop Phillips had told me about.
5: When I think about his comment, gosh, I get that. I get, like, we talked about that in high school, that we didn't want to be the poor kids on the bus. And... I get people wanting the freedom, right? To travel where they want to, where they want to at any time.
0: Chantelle grew up in Five Points, one of Bishop Phillips' old neighborhoods. And she says she was that poor kid on the bus. Her mom didn't have a car and she was embarrassed by it. The commute to school took hours. So when she got to college, she saved up her paychecks from her fast food job. She bought a car as soon as she could. And it was great. Until she realized that the freedom of driving, it has its own set of costs, like parking. So she went back to the bus. And she says by this point in her life, what other people thought of her was the least of her problems.
5: I was working two jobs. I was in school full time. I was taking care of my kiddo. And those were my priorities. And I thought to myself, one, it's so expensive to park every day at CU. And two, none of the people who care about me being poor actually care enough to help me not be poor except for me and so why should I care about what people think about or perceive me to be and also what's so wrong with someone being poor like yeah I didn't have any money so what that's what I was like trying to actively come out of was poverty and the people who wanted to see me do well, didn't care about what shoes I had on or what bus I was on or any of those things. Um, And I just stopped caring. (laughs)
0: She's one of the loudest voices in Denver for more transit service where people really need it. Places with low-income residents and people of color. Places like where this bus runs on East Colfax, a long, densely populated street originally built around streetcars. It's not rush hour right now. It's like the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, we're in a pandemic and this bus is pretty full.
5: It is full. It's 15.
0: <laughs> Why do you think that is?
5: Because there are folks during this pandemic who depend on transit, right? There there are many people who have had the luxury of being able to work from the comforts of their homes um, and myself included. Um, but there are some folks who never stop working and who have needed to travel to grocery stores, healthcare workers, right? folks who work in food service, um, the folks we depend on. Um, and so the 15 is full because this is a part of their livelihoods, this commute, this mode of transportation.
0: She says the idea that buses are for poor people while trains are for wealthy people, that's classist and racist too. She says Denver needs to get over its obsession with trains.
5: I think that goes back to what people perceive in terms of the value that buses add and the value that trains add. Like, they're literally doing the same thing. They're taking you from point A to point B to point C. They just look different, and they might travel at different speeds.
0: If Denver wants to be a world-class city, Chantal Lewis says it needs to build a transit system that's actually accessible for the people who really need it. And, she says, the city needs to start reshaping itself again, because while cars solved some of yesterday's problems, they've created many new ones. They're dangerous, especially to pedestrians. They're expensive to own, but most of us need them to live our lives. And even though cars are cleaner now than ever before, they're a leading contributor to climate change and bad air quality. Brutal ozone pollution and thick wildfire smoke are now common in Denver summers. Electric vehicles will help with that, but they're still very expensive. And the highways they use still take up a lot of space. EVs won't solve traffic. Chantal says the solution is to change how our city is built and how we move through it.
5: If we really want to see a better city, a better world, one that really prioritizes climate change, right, really prioritizes the impacts on our city that we we have to change.
0: Denver, like other cities across the world, has transformed many times in the last 150 years, from a walk-in city to a transit city to a car city. Some cities, and especially in Europe, they've transformed again into places that more equally balance cars with walking, biking, and transit. Chantal Lewis says it's time for that to happen here.
5: Like This is the time for us to start making investments in our infrastructure differently than we have in the past, so not continuing to widen highways, but really continuing or beginning to invest in transit and the expansion of transit.
0: Denver is slowly taking space away from cars. New bike lanes are popping up and there are a handful of new bus lanes in and near downtown. Even the State Department of Transportation has become less car obsessed in recent years. It's still spending billions widening highways, but now it's also building bus stations into those highways and it's started its own small statewide transit service. RTD has a little more courage to take on cars these days, too. It's identified nearly 10 roads across the city and in some key suburban areas where it wants bus-only lanes, like here on Colfax.
5: It's an opportunity for folks who are utilizing the service to just sit past the folks who are in their, their vehicles all by themselves sitting in traffic.
0: But this plan has a long way to go. Taking away space for cars is still controversial. Few politicians beyond Chantal Lewis are actively pushing for it. Most RTD board members represent suburban areas and want more bus service there before boosting it in the city. The public will to ride may not be there yet either. Buses and transit still have not earned reputation for sometimes being unsafe. And RTD is in a huge financial hole. It'll be paying off its billions of dollars in train debt for decades. It doesn't have the money or the staff to expand bus service anytime soon. So what should we make of all of this? How can we tackle problems like climate change, air quality, and equitable access to opportunities? And will RTD's trains be any help? Well, here's what I've learned, both through reporting this series and since I started riding them almost eight years ago. When Cal Marcella first envisioned fast tracks, he built it as something that could help commuters escape traffic. He offered a vision of transit that tried to give everyone freedom, their cars and a train ride. The Denver area has been growing like crazy for the last decade as these train lines have opened. They have incentivized some transit-friendly growth But for the most part, governments here keep prioritizing the car by expanding highways, which increases urban sprawl. So air quality and traffic problems just get worse. If we really want to make a dent in those problems, we need to do more than change how we move. We also need to change how far we need to move. And that means we might have to change what our communities look like to be less like a suburb and more like a city. And I'm not talking about some luxury condos downtown on top of big parking garages. I'm talking about more affordable homes built in walkable places where you don't need a car to access everything in your life, work, school, and the grocery store. It means taking space away from cars and putting more resources into walking, cycling, and transit to make those easier and safer It means using the bus to get to a trailhead or a ski slope. It means a deep overhaul in what we build and how we live. Buses and trains will never be able to go as many places as a car can, but they shape our world in a way where you don't need to go as far. And that type of world has its own kind of freedom. Up the highway in Boulder, people there have a similar vision and they've put it into motion. But a broken promise RTD made years ago might prevent that vision from ever coming to pass. We are very much in the center of Boulder in what I call condo hell. It's sort of a miniature little urban area centered around a transit system that doesn't exist. Next time, in our final episode, the story of the ghost train itself, why the line to Boulder and Longmont was left behind, and whether it has any hope of being built, or if Colorado should move past it and into a new future. It's Nate. If you're enjoying Ghost Train, I have a quick favor to ask. Take a moment to find Ghost Train on whatever podcast app you use and give us a like, a rating, or a review. If you think the stories we're sharing are important, if you think reporting about accountability matters, all you have to do to spread the word is like us, rate us, or review us. It really does help other people find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio.